BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, have you ever received a mental health diagnosis that felt wrong or incomplete? One that didn't really capture your experience? In Rachel Aviv's new book, Strangers to Ourselves, she collects the stories of people who found their diagnoses or treatment or even the language available to them to describe their experiences failed them. We'll talk with Aviv about what she learned about the limits of psychiatry from those she profiled and from examining her own psychiatric diagnosis at age six. Join us. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. Rachel Aviv's new book, Strangers to Ourselves, is, in her words, about people whose struggles with mental illness place them in the psychic hinterlands, a place where psychiatry, its language, its diagnoses, its treatments, or some combination of all three, have failed them in whole or in part. Rachel Aviv is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Welcome to Forum, Rachel. Thanks for having me. Really glad to have you. You share the stories of of several people who've been in these psychic hinterlands, as you say. But Rachel, the first story you share in the book is your own. How at six you decided to stop eating and and drinking. Can you tell us what you remember about that time and, and why you did that? I don't remember that much. I do remember that it was a week after Yom Kippur and that fasting was an idea that sort of seemed like a new possibility and that there was something, fasting had associations related to sort of being virtuous. Um, And then I remember that once I did stop eating, I was aware of like the power that that gave me uh, with my family. And because, you know, a six-year-old has such losing like a pound or two for a six-year-old is a significant portion of their body weight. My mom took me to the pediatrician and it was the late 80s. And at that time, I think anorexia was this sort of exciting, forbidden thing that was spreading. And I was diagnosed with anorexia and put in a hospital. And, you know, I, I had no idea what anorexia was. I remember my mom told me and it like reminded me of a dinosaur and I kind of felt empowered by that word. Yeah, the word itself, anorexia, sounds like T-Rex right, or right. something. Exactly. Um, and then I met these older girls. I wasn't allowed to see my parents in the hospital. I instead kind of became friends with these older girls who had the same diagnosis. And I really looked up to them and saw them as sort of mentors. And I was there in the hospital for six weeks. But in that time, I sort of developed anorexia in a more real way, I think, um, because I kind of modeled myself after those girls. I had never realized um, that exercising had anything to do with body weight, but they like taught me that that was a good thing to do. So during those six weeks, I, I feel like I, I sort of learned to become anorexic. Um, yeah. Wow, that trajectory 
over those six weeks is so fascinating. I do want to go back, though, because I was struck by something you said when you said the power not eating gave you. Mm-hmm. What kind of power did it give you over your family? I just think as a child, there are very few ways to like make your individuality and your will known. And eating is one of them. It's like one of the few things you really can control. And I just noticed that people responded to me. I, one of my memories is my telling my teacher I didn't want to eat anything for lunch. And I remember she kind of looked at me like she was like sizing me up for the first time. And I felt like really seen and it was kind of thrilling. Mm-hmm. So I just, I think the response of people to the sort of whim that I'd had in a way kind of spurred on, gave me more momentum than I would have otherwise had. Yeah. Do you remember trying to explain to your parents or to the doctors what was in your head as you refused to eat? I don't remember, but the strange thing is that, like, later on, I learned the language of sort of, I don't want to be fat. So I do remember using that sentence, like, later on in my hospital stay, but it's very hard to know if I kind of found a language to explain what was going on, and, and maybe it like wasn't totally appropriate to the occasion. Yeah. You learned this language from the older girls in the ward? Yeah, yeah, because they were like 12, 13, 14, and, and they seemed like really lovely and beautiful. And, you know, I'd never spent that much time around older girls like that, like living with them. I had a roommate. And so I wanted their approval. And there was this weird, like, social ecosystem in which good anorexics were seen as more virtuous. So uh, I kind of adopted that value system during the time I was there. You write a lot in your book about, or you touch on how people can adjust their own behaviors to fit a diagnosis. And there is also this moment when your dad sort of suggests that you learned how to be an anorexic through that stay, as opposed to whether or not that was really the correct diagnosis. Do you think that was an example of that, that you were adjusting your behavior to fit the diagnosis of anorexia? Yeah, I think, you know, there's this this scholar, Ian Hacking, writes about what he calls the looping effect, which is like that... We don't just name or label illnesses. We also sort of adjust to better become the thing that we've been classified with. So like we we make adjustments so that we better fit that classification. And I think um, like I've always been interested in the sort of mismatch between the way we classify illnesses and sort of whatever it is at the very core of that illness before like culture or social, before like it was shaped by a social context. So like some, what was the sort of pure distress that I was experiencing maybe before I learned like how, what form it could take in our society. You looked back at some of your medical records then, and there was this one psychologist who wrote, clearly her symptoms are an expression of the pathology in the relationship between her mother and father. And I'm I'm struck by the confidence of that psychologist's determination because what you're describing doesn't quite fit that. I mean, I think that is, it's such a, uh, like, relic of late 80s, you know, that that you assume, and I don't disagree entirely with that assessment, but that you just sort of assume it comes from the family and that, like, the, the 
any manifestation of suffering, mental suffering, is a result of parenting. I think that was like a, a very popular idea at that time. Yeah. The title of your book, Strangers to Ourselves, I, I understand it comes from a girl on your ward, something she mm-hmm. wrote in a journal. Her name was Hava. First, can you tell us about Hava? She was 12 or 13 when I met her. Um, and she just kind of took me under her wing. Like later on, I read her journals and, and she mentioned me too, like as this young girl who she saw as like a little, you know, I think she thought I was cute and, and like a little mascot or something. I don't know. Um, but I really liked her. And when I, years later, when I was working on this book, I interviewed my doctors at the hospital and I said, I, I remembered this amazing girl named Hava. I like, I'd completely fell out of touch with her, but I've always wondered about her. And they told me they got very quiet and I could tell there was something they were sort of uncomfortable about. And it turned out she had died six weeks earlier. And I think... I felt very chastened by realizing that for her, you know, I had, anorexia had always felt like this sort of freak accident that had happened to me as a six-year-old. And it was just chastening to realize that it had really defined the course of her life. Um, Because her death was related to her anorexia. Right. She had died from her eating disorder, essentially. And that sort of the different directions that the two of you took, it really feels like a theme throughout this book. I think this sense of how you were able to break out of it, whereas for someone else it became almost like a career or something right. that they could never leave. Well, and, I, yeah. and I was really struck, so I, I read a lot of her journals uh, that her mom gave to me, and, and I did feel like our situations when I was six, when she was 12, were very similar, like very similar family histories. And I was sort of shaken to realize how similar we were and then to realize like how our lives had veered in such different directions. And it felt almost arbitrary. Like why hadn't I lived her life? Why hadn't she lived my life? Um, And I, I do think like that is something I feel also just sort of writing about people with mental illness, that like the moment, there there are these moments that sort of shift you on a different track and you sort of start to self-identify as someone who has an illness and who will be sort of limited by that illness. Um, And I think I was also interested in the fact that like for me as a six-year-old, a diagnosis just like couldn't carry that much weight in my mind. I was sort of moving through developmental stages very quickly and I and I was thinking about you know what happens when you're given a diagnosis like for some people it can feel really healing and it can explain everything but I think it can also feel like a self-fulfilling prophecy and I, I wondered if for Hava that became her identity and then maybe other sources of meaning sort of receded. Yeah. Let me invite our listeners into the conversation I'm curious, listeners, if you have been given a mental health diagnosis that maybe felt wrong or incomplete or didn't capture your experiences. Maybe you had trouble communicating a mental health issue to a provider or a loved one. Or as Rachel is describing, a a diagnosis that you felt defined by uh, in a negative or maybe complicated way or ever tried to fit one 
Um, you can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786 if you have some thoughts you'd like to share. So why then, Rachel, did Hava's words, Strangers to Ourselves, jump out at you from her journals and become the title of your book? I think I was... Wanting to draw attention. First, I just thought it was a beautiful phrase. Yeah. But um, second, I think I, you know, like there are these explanations that we that we can derive great meaning from in terms of like what is causing our brains maybe to not work the way that we had hoped. Um, but I think there's also a way in which those explanations can estrange us from other forms of understanding what's going on. And often there's this sense that there might only be one explanation. And once we get that medical explanation, we sort of throw out the other ways that we were explaining it to ourselves. And I think that that can, there's a risk of sort of depriving people of other ways of making sense of what they're going through, like socially, politically, um, existentially. We'll have more with Rachel Aviv after the break. The book is Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds, and the Stories That Make Us. Stay with us, listeners. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. Harvard professor Drew Gilpin Faust recently discovered that the majority of her students could not read cursive. To them, it was like a foreign language, which got us thinking, is handwriting relevant anymore? Send us your thoughts or a picture of your handwriting if you want to forum at kqed.org. Today, we're talking with Rachel Aviv, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the new book, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories that Make Us, about the limits of psychiatry and helping us to understand ourselves, or how mental health diagnoses can affect us, our our sense of self. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation if those kinds of questions resonate with you, or maybe you've gotten a diagnosis that was helpful and clarifying. And feel free to share that, too. But if you have felt defined diagnosis in a complicated way, tried to fit into one, or just really not sure it was right, (laughs) 
you can share that story as well. Let me go first to Debbie in Concord, who's called in. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Um, I just wanted to share my daughter had had a nervous breakdown a few years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm lucky she was on my insurance. I was able to take her to a psychiatrist right away. But the psychiatrist, you know, kind of, you know, acted as if she was bipolar after seeing her for 45 minutes. And I luckily have a brother who is, has a PhD in psychology and has you know, had done clinical work most of his life. And so I was using him as a resource. And he said, you know, you can't really make that determination in 45 minutes. And anxiety is 90, you know, I don't know, at least 90 percent of the patients. And it's very, very treatable. And it turns out that's all it was. She had anxiety all her life, which I kind of ignored as a parent. And then, uh, you know, she just takes a basic, you know, Zoloft, a very standard anti-anxiety pill, and she's fine. Mm. Well, Debbie, I'm glad to hear she's she's doing well. But Rachel, would love to get your thoughts on what Debbie just said about a bipolar diagnosis in 45 minutes and what that makes you think of. I, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I wonder also if the doctor, if there's this expectation, I don't know if like what the reimbursement structure was, but I do think it's, you know, the way that our health insurance system works is that like the doctor generally doesn't get paid unless he gets a diagnosis or he or she gets a diagnosis. And I think there's this emphasis on speed because you need to get reimbursed for that first appointment. But then I do wonder how much like once a diagnosis has been issued, it sort of quells any curiosity about like digging deeper, like what what is actually, you know, mm-hmm. how if you listen to the person's story in greater depth, maybe you would come up with like a much different sort of read on the situation. I think, yeah, the idea of diagnosing bipolar in 45 minutes seems like a a great risk that someone will walk away sort of reconceiving their whole life. Yeah. Thinking about the structural issues you're raising around diagnosis and also just bipolar is reminding me of Naomi, one of the people you profile in the book. Could you tell us about her? Naomi was a is, but at this time she was a young mother of four kids, um, and she started to experience psychosis. And at the time she felt like, you know, she had grown up in poverty, she had experienced a lot of discrimination, and she felt like she was finally discovering what it meant to be a black mother in America raising children. Um, And so when she would interact with psychiatrists because her family would take her to the hospital, she would want to tell them, like, I'm like the scowls are falling from my eyes. I'm seeing how racism shaped my life. And and they diagnosed her as bipolar and sort of w- weren't really engaging with the kind of social political conversation she wanted to have. And I think because of that, she felt like unseen and um, it actually alienated her from medical care. And she ended up committing a crime while psychotic. And I think, you know, looking back, she obviously wished she had gotten that medical care, but there was this like failure. She didn't feel like they were hearing what was actually causing her distress. And so she looked elsewhere for help. Yeah, it was really horrific and very tragic what she does to herself and and to other loved ones. But I... I guess one of the things that really struck me about Naomi's story is she's trying to describe her recognition of the impact that racism has had on her life. She is given a diagnosis that's really focused on her her mental health. She's described as bipolar, but you also describe it as as something 
in the body, right? like a, a bodily diagnosis. And can you talk about the impact of it really being situated in her and her body by the doctors? I think for her, it felt like, you know, there has been this push in the last 20 years to destigmatize mental illness by talking about it as something that is biological and we don't need to blame anyone because it it's about our biology. And I think that can really work for a lot of people. Um, but then Naomi's coming in there and she knows that she was brought to this point of crisis because of her upbringing and, and the like severe hardships that she faced. And so to tell her that it's just in her body feels like minimizing like her actual experience. And obviously it's not like a zero-sum game. It can be both. But I think in order for her to trust her doctors, that recognition was important that it was about like her body, but her body's relationship to the community that she grew up in. Yeah. Let me go to another call. Michael in Boston, join us. Hi, Michael. Hello. I received a diagnosis first of Asperger's syndrome, and then when that was folded into the autistic spectrum, uh, that, and I feel like it helps explain a lot of things like, please pardon my language, like why I, the other uh, children was, would scream uh, retard at me yeah. in the morning and professor at me in the afternoon. Uh, I think that pretty much qualifies as a diagnosis in itself. I feel like it, it does help explain a lot, and it makes me feel a little bit better about never really feel fitting in with normal people. But on the other hand, I feel like I've met some other people who use it as an excuse to be more jerks than they have to be. Huh. I try to understand other people, uh, knowing the rules that they're, they've got just you know, to be nice to each other, um, even if I don't fully grasp them, but I can imitate them, and I try to as much as possible because I don't want to be unpleasant to them, yeah. and I apologize when I am, but on the, on the other, I think that there's a problem of embracing an illness. Um, it's, it's a difficult one, and I think in the past we've been too hard on people, but on the other hand, at least for people with means and uh, who aren't uh, experiencing bigotry on a daily basis and otherwise being put down, uh, a certain amount should be asked of us as well. Well, Michael, thanks for, for sharing those those observations and thoughts. And also, it sounds like Rachel and Michael's case, his diagnosis, was something that was clarifying, maybe yeah. even potentially healing. Right. I think we tend to think of diagnoses as sort of like neutral, like they reflect our experience. And I think it's just striking that they also act on our, you know, they sort of influence the way that we think about our lives and about our potential, not just diagnoses, but sort of like the way that we explain who we are uh, through psychiatric explanations. Um, so I guess I, I feel like it is a sense of unpredictability and that maybe there can be like more um, humility about not actually knowing how a diagnosis will interact with any particular identity. Like for some people, it really does make you feel like you're in touch with a community and sort of less can alleviate blame and guilt and things like that. Yeah. Um, well, this listener tweets, I recently read What Happened to You by Oprah Winfrey and Bruce D. Perry, and it changed my life. My perspective shifted from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. 
And that really feels like it has a lot of resonance with Naomi's story. What ultimately helped Naomi? Or did she find something that provided some sense of healing or recovery? Well, she ended up in prison um, because she threw herself and her two twins off a bridge and one did not survive. Um, So in prison, you know, she was obviously really struggling both with bipolar disorder and with the sense of guilt. And over the course of many years, I think she she became close with a, a librarian at the prison who, like, she they were both sort of reading books at the same time. And Naomi started to understand that there's more of a tradition of Black mothers in particular sort of not being able to or not being allowed to acknowledge that they're depressed, that there's this sense of Black mothers sort of having to carry the burden and not complain. And I think seeing the way that she had grown up thinking that being depressed or being mentally ill just wasn't an option gave her more of a capacity to forgive herself for reaching that stage of just complete mental health crisis. Um, But I think it, it was also striking to realize that it was, you know, finding other women like her that felt really healing for her more than, you know, finding some doctor that would heal her. It was sort of these like peer relationships where she felt a sense of kinship and she didn't feel like she was the only one who'd had this experience. We're talking with Rachel Aviv and you, our listeners, are joining the conversation telling us if you've ever been given a mental health diagnosis that felt wrong or incomplete or if you've gotten a diagnosis that was helpful or clarifying, have you experienced some of these sort of intricacies of illness, I guess, for lack of a better description, that Rachel is describing feeling defined by a diagnosis or it affecting your identity in some way or trying to fit into one as well? You can call forum at 866-733-6786. You can email us forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or at KQED Forum. The talking and the engagement really helped. Naomi, uh, there is somebody you profile for whom this idea of talk therapy, which isn't, I'm not saying what Naomi went through, but but there is this other person who found uh, that talk therapy wasn't necessarily such a useful uh, treatment. Can you share the story of Ray in your book? Yeah. Um, so Ray Osheroff, in the early in the late seventies and early eighties, he was treated at Chestnut Lodge. It was this um, sort of famous psychoanalytic hospital that had these really utopian beliefs about like if you just listen to someone closely enough and for long enough, you'll sort of understand what makes them who they are and you'll be able to heal them. And he went there, and. He was very depressed. He was a doctor, uh, and he'd sort of stopped being able to work. And Chestnut Lodge wanted to talk to him, and he just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And they wanted to talk about why he was getting worse, and it only made him worse. Um, And then eventually his mother pulled him out of the hospital, and he was treated with antidepressants. Then he sued Chestnut Lodge, and his case became this, like, canonical confrontation between a biological model of the mind in a psychoanalytic model, and it's often presented in textbooks as a sign of the triumph of biology. 
but I, you know, I, I ended up reading a lot of the writing he'd written in his medical records. Um, he had been writing a memoir for years in his life. And it's just obviously this, the story itself is more, you know, neither really feels like the solution for him. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because in some ways, I do feel like we have hit a point where we do tend to find that medication may actually be be the preferred avenue that psychiatrists will will take as opposed to modern talk Definitely. therapy. Like his yeah. experience is like one extreme in the talk therapy. But I'm wondering if you think we've almost flipped in modern day uh, psychiatry in the way that we help people with mental illness. Yeah, I mean, I think his case signaled that the beginning of that shift where... Uh. Um, that he really did, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then we've moved to a place where medicine is is sort of the seen as the solution in a lot of, in part because of the constraints I think that are placed on psychiatrists in terms of their time, and so people are given medications really quickly and and not a lot of other approaches. Let me go to Erica in Livermore. Hi, Erica. Yeah. So I went to the emergency because I wasn't able to breathe, and this was at the beginning of the pandemic. And the doctor, uh, I mean, he, he was with me like five minutes, no more than 10 minutes, and he said that I had a panic attack. And then he wanted to prescribe uh, antidepressants right away. So that was really, um, I was surprised yeah. that in less than 10 minutes, he wanted to prescribe uh, antidepressants right away. And you felt that was the incorrect diagnosis for you? For sure. Yeah. I, I couldn't I couldn't breathe. Uh, I had I couldn't breathe for days. And that's why I went to the emergency. I never go to the emergency. It was as I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, I see him less than five minutes. And he's like, oh, you need, you're having a panic attack. And we are prescribing antidepressants. Erica, thanks. Feel free if you want to comment on what Erica just shared, Rachel, but also just wondering, how often is it that the patient will tell you one thing and a doctor will just totally disagree with you? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know how often, but it's definitely um, like a feature a of, <laughs> of, of life. Yeah. And I think that's a very confusing, like the what is sort of physical versus psychological. Um, I think like in that space, there's a lot of like bias about like certain kinds of people coming in with certain kinds of complaints and assumptions about like what the root of the problem must be. Can you tell us what insight is? It's just, it's a word that's used in a descriptive way by psychiatrists whenever a patient comes in. You know, if you have insight, it means you understand like the nature of the problem, kind of that you, if, if if a person with psychosis has insight, it means she understands she's experienced psychosis. She doesn't think that she's hearing the voices of dead people. Like she realizes, oh, that's a symptom of my medical, my mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that came up in the book was that people were seen as not having insight in ways that kind of discouraged probing of what they were actually trying to say. Like for Naomi, she didn't have insight. I mean, one of the ironies is 
she was said she didn't have insight and um you know when she was initially going into the hospital she was given a bipolar diagnosis and no one really wanted to talk about the things that she was trying to talk about related to her own life and then later when she was arrested for her crime um she was put psychologists um evaluated her to see if she was competent to stand trial and they decided she was competent to stand trial she couldn't plead insanity and they said like the proof of her competence is the fact that she's pointing to like real problems in society related to racism like they were basically saying she's having these very clear-eyed sociological insights therefore she can't be so mentally ill that she's not competent to stand trial well well we are talking with Rachel Aviv and let me read a couple of comments for you. The sister writes, my daughter was diagnosed with OCD when she was in fifth grade. She's now a college freshman. I've encouraged her over the years to be more than or also instead of fully, wholly just OCD. Another listener, Laura, writes, my daughter was diagnosed with an anxiety disorder a year ago. She's seven years old. We've come to find out she's dyslectic, dyslexic, and we've been told that if we address the dyslexia, some of the anxiety will ease. It's been impossible to find a therapist in today's high demand, and so we've been putting off therapy that would address her anxiety. Also, my husband feels that if we highlight her anxieties and stress, it could make things worse, like your guest, Rachel, who found a unique power in her diagnosis. It's a decision we struggle with, and finding help is nearly impossible. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rachel Aviv, a staff writer for The New Yorker and author of the new book, Strangers to Ourselves, Unsettled Minds and the Stories that Make Us, about the limits of psychiatry and helping us to understand ourselves and how mental health diagnoses can affect us or our sense of self. You, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Let me go to more of your calls. Anthony in San Jose. Hi, Anthony. Hi. Good morning. Uh, I'd like to just uh, highlight one one aspect of this situation is that in uh, California prisons, uh, people get um, uh, 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 mental health care is poor at best. But when you um, do get to, and, and about forty percent of inmates are diagnosed with some uh, mental condition, uh, and um, so what happens is um, uh, you get to see a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist. Pre- 
prescribes medication, and then the, the Department of Corrections moves you to another hospital. Then you get a new psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist <clears throat> may have a different opinion, and you get, a, you get another diagnosis, and <clears throat> you get a, a yet another medication. And what happens is over the course of long periods of incarceration, and California does incarcerate people for very long periods of time, you get moved around a lot and you get multiple diagnoses and you have tons and multiple pill bottles and multiple medications to take. And so, and you never get really talk therapy. No one tries to find out why you feel this way. And of course, Prison itself is extremely stressful and probably would cause most of us to have mental illness. But anyway, in prison, you get multiple diagnoses and you get loaded up with multiple medications. And then 20 or 30 years later, when you get out, you have all these diagnoses and all these medications and you're left to, to deal with it on your own because you don't, get, you don't get any mental health after you get released. So I would just like to point this out, that California deals very, very poorly with the mental health of its 100,000 incarcerated people. Well, Anthony, thank you for giving us a, a vivid look at what that experience is like for incarcerated people. Um, let me see if I can get Chris from San Francisco in next. Hi, Chris. What's on your mind? And while we try to reconnect with Chris, let me go to Shelly in San Francisco. Hi, Shelly. Hi. Um, I just wanted to share, it's almost the opposite of what you're talking about, but it fits, which is that I was having um, waking dreams and kind of visions and forgetting things and um, depressed, anxiety, all of this. And I did talk to one doctor about it, and uh, she was like, yeah, I don't know what that is. And um, as it turned out, yes, it was it was epilepsy. And the doctor, um, I had a big seizure and MRIs, all of that, and was diagnosed. And they gave me medication, but there was no help whatsoever with all the things that come along with it, which does make you feel like you're going crazy. There's a huge mental aspect that goes with it, which... Um, yeah, you couldn't talk about the epilepsy because everybody thought it's a you can't talk about it. It's there's a lot of stigma, but there was also no help whatsoever, just the medication. Um, so it's a similar thing and something nobody ever talks about. Um, so this is this is great to hear about all this. Well, Shelley, thanks. The, the nobody ever talks about Rachel. I mean, in many ways, you are bringing to light a lot of the things that don't really get talked about. You you are very probing and you look into these areas, these gray areas that don't get discussed very much. Did it bring any insights for you, <laughs> to use that word, but insights for you into why we don't talk about these things? Is it limitations structurally in our language? What, what have you discovered? I, I think some of it is just so hard to, um, we just don't have words for a lot of these experiences. Um, it just falls in the spaces between words or in the spaces between the sort of names we have for things. And I think that that makes it really hard to even try to communicate. Um, you know, I remember one person 
I interviewed, I was asking her to describe her symptoms and she said, uh, trying to explain trying to explain it is like trying to explain to someone what a bark sounds like if they've never heard of a dog. And I think that there is this sense of like, um, you know, if you can't talk about it, then it does feel stigmatized and or it feels like incommunicable somehow for it. it, it there's more shame around it or there's more sense of being the only one in the world. And I think that alone is a reason to like try to find words and to not just use medical language, but to try to have a way of sort of communicating about these spaces that aren't really mapped out in our mental experience. Why was it important to you to provide people who had written about their struggles? You talk with them, but why was it important that they had processed their experience through the written word? I think because it there were just so many layers of processing, you know, that in the moment of a mental health crisis, they might have written a diary entry about it. And that was very raw and immediate. And then maybe a few years later, they wrote friends about what had happened. And that was a, a slightly different kind of processing. And then later on with me, they would talk about it. And I, I did want to kind of capture those different ways of interpreting and and at the beginning when you're writing about it your impression of the experience is not yet influenced by other people's interpretations um and you know the people that i wrote about were really elegant writers and i i was so impressed by the way they described what was happening but i was also struck by how they always felt it was inadequate that like no matter how they understood what they were experiencing. They still needed someone else to sort of confirm that what they were feeling was real. Well, Stella writes, I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was 55 years old. It was such a relief to finally understand that I wasn't lazy or stupid. I'm now 74 and I still struggle with ADHD daily. I'm gentler with myself and work diligently to make the best of it. I'm grateful to know that many others are working with this condition, too. Rachel, I want to ask you finally about Laura. Um, Laura's psychiatric experiences feel so different from Naomi's and Ray's, especially in the way that she engages with the psychiatric establishment and that she ends up sort of falling into this pattern of over-medication to to an extreme. Um, Can you talk about her a little bit and why Laura's Mm -hmm. story really stood out to you? She was sort of like the prototypically ideal psychiatric patient, like just came came from a really wealthy family, um, went to Harvard, was an overachiever, but like always felt this sense of dissonance. Um, And when she went to a psychiatrist, she was diagnosed as bipolar and she really embraced her identity as a person with bipolar. And she felt like, you know, whatever medication her doctor prescribed would be the sort of precision instrument that would like fix the problem. And then, you know, in her late 20s, she realized she'd been on 19 medications over the course of a decade and that she wasn't any better than she was before. And, And that also because she had started taking medications before she was an adult, she really didn't have a baseline sense of who she was. Hmm. Um, in a way she felt like she'd internalized the idea of herself as a bipolar person and it had become a kind of career for her. It had like shaped her sense of who she thought she could become. You suggest in the book or <laughs> that 
Laura's story also, in some ways, is an examination of your trying to understand her is, is a way of examining your own relationship to psychopharmaceuticals. You, I understand, have taken Lexapro for many years. What is it that you wanted to understand about that? Well, I think I was struggling with the idea that it was so hard to get off antidepressants. Like, And I felt that there wasn't a lot of writing about withdrawal from these medications and sort of what to do when you're on it for years and then you want to try going off. And so... I was drawn to Laura because she was really like thinking deeply about these questions of how to get off medications and and like how to even figure out who you were before the medications and then what to do with the fact that like when you get off of them maybe you were someone different than you were before. It there just felt like so many confusing like existential questions and you know my experience with Lexapro was positive um and so I think I would sometimes challenge Laura about that because she had experienced medications as as damaging to her in the end. And I took a different view, um, but like both of us were aware of just how confusing, what happens to your sense of self when you take medications and how hard it is to figure out um, whether you are okay with your sense of self changing and if you can accept that as a good thing or, or if you should be suspicious of that. There just felt like so many issues that are not sort of untangled that much. Um, and that is part of why I was so drawn to her story. Do you connect those questions that you've been asking yourself around Lexapro to your childhood experience of, of being diagnosed with anorexia? I actually don't know that I do that much. It feels, you know, I think in moments you're always looking for a sense of continuity kind of with your own self, your own story. And I think maybe there were moments where I thought, oh, it's okay not to get off of this medication because, you know, maybe I'm more similar to that six-year-old than I thought I was. But I think in general, it didn't feel so much about me. It felt more about this like cultural moment. Like I, I was so struck by realizing that so many friends and colleagues of mine were having such a similar experience on Lexapro. And I felt like, like, what is it about, you know, women, largely white women in this particular social milieu that like, um, this is helping us to function in a different way. I, that was more troubling to me. Like I had been like caught up in some sort of like cultural moment. Is there anything that that actually is a common thread in terms of what makes you feel some sense of this is a good thing for me <laughs> or, um, you know, settled in your decision to continue taking it? I think it's just like a... I think it's worth being pragmatic sometimes. And it's, um, so no, I mean, no, I don't feel so settled. I feel like you you can make decisions about sort of the person you want to be in the context of your family or in the context of your... Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.